Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, the 12th chapter, verses 22 to 34. Listen together for a word from God. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? If, then, you are not able to do so, small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading comes to us from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3 and 8 to 16. Let's listen again for a word from God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs to the same promise. For he looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, he received power of procreation, even though he was too old and Sarah herself was barren, because he considered himself faithful, who, because he considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one person, and this one good as dead, descendants were born as many as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable as grains of sand by the seashore. All of these died in faith, 
without having received the promises, but from a distance they saw and greeted them. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on earth, for people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land that they had left behind, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. The word of the Lord. The word calls and invites us this morning, a little bit later, to the Lord's table uh, for a celebration of communion or the Eucharist, uh, which means thanksgiving. It's an opportunity for us to come together to the table virtually or in person and give thanks by offering our hearts to God, trusting in the promise that when we do, God offers the divine heart to us in the real spiritual presence of Jesus Christ. So uh, those of you who are at home, I encourage you to uh, get elements ready, um, put it on pause if you have to, or turn it up loud and uh, be ready to join your church family in uh, this sacred meal a few minutes from now. Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts together this morning upon your word, O God, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Top of your bulletin, the very beginning, has a quote from Calvin Miller, um, which I invite you to take a look at. We're going to revisit those that particular quote a little bit later, but I'd like to start with another quote from Miller, who was a storyteller of great renown in the Christian world. And the quote is this. Miller said, for most who live, hell is never knowing who they are. The singer knew, and knowing was his torment. For most who live, hell is never knowing who they are. Now, as I talked about with the kids this morning, in mainline Protestant Christianity, and by that I mean Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Methodists, too often I think we see faith as information, as knowledge, and the life of faith, even preaching, even worshiping, as a transmittal of information, as a task of educating ourselves and each other. So we learn in faith, we often think, what we should do, how we should live, um, and we sort of get a sense that if the, how, how we learn, determine, how well we learn determines whether we are assessed by God to be acceptable or not. But the biblical witness doesn't talk about faith as knowledge or content transmission. The biblical witness presents a life of faith as an invitation, an invitation that we have to decide every day to accept. That's why I believe, maybe it's because I grew up in a more evangelical Baptist background, but I do believe while we don't need an altar call at the end of every sermon like I grew up with, where you had to come up and pray with an elder in order to go home, 
somebody had to get saved, I do think every worship service and certainly every sermon should have a challenge or an invitation embedded into it because scripturally, the word of God always does, always challenges us, invites us to grow closer to God and to our best selves. That's appropriate today that we look at these two texts on a communion Sunday because when we come to the Lord's table to commune together, to eat that sacred meal together, we always begin with words of invitation. And we call it the Lord's Supper because he presides. Jesus himself invites us into his presence and in that meal together. So I'd like us to read both of the texts, which Graham read so well just now, as if they had arrived at your house, your home, in the mail, in one of those sort of fancy invitation envelopes, you know, heavy stock paper, embossed letters, you know this is going to be a good party, whatever it is, really beautiful calligraphy, or as one of those evites that are coming to us these days, when, when once you click on one of those evites, it whisks you to graphics like you wouldn't believe, and then right to a website whose design is beyond your wildest dreams, and if, if you are SVP, yes, not only can you choose the chicken or the fish or the beef, you also are promised, just by the way it's presented to you, to have the most amazing time you could ever imagine at whatever party or wedding celebration this would be. The first invitation that comes to us in the mail or online today in our imagination comes from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, by way of invitation to us, do not worry about your life. I'm inviting you not to worry. This is not information. This is an exhortation to trust, to believe. Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, because life is more than food and more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They are fed. Consider the lilies. Is anything, even King Solomon, more beautifully adorned than these and how much more value are you than even the ravens and the lilies? So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. There might be reason to fear, to be nervous, to worry. But don't. I am with you. I am inviting you to trust me. To take what Kierkegaard called that leap of faith. Kierkegaard, this great philosopher, theologian, basically said faith comes down to trusting, to jumping into the arms of God. The leap of faith concept from Kierkegaard is this concept that points to a state in which a person is faced with a choice that cannot be justified completely rationally and therefore has to be leapt into, jumped into. The leap of faith, therefore, is a leap into faith which is allowed only by trust, stemming from a paradoxical contradiction between the ethical and the rational on one side and the spiritual on the other. Our second invitation this morning in Scripture comes to us in this anonymous letter, which we call the Letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. It's a fascinating letter. We don't know who wrote it. Traditionally, a lot of us grew up thinking it was Paul. We're pretty almost 100% certain it was not Paul, but rather a letter written by a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ somewhere near the end of the first century 
uh, overtly and directly to Jesus' own people, his fellow Jews, proclaiming that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for, the Messiah, the high priest, who now makes intercession for us in a way even more prominent than the temple in Jerusalem. And in chapter 11 of the letter to the Hebrews, arguably the most famous chapter in this letter, the author recounts the great heroes of the Jewish faith, these Israelites who showed us again and again what faith really is, always jumping, taking that risky step before you know what the answer is going to be, before you know how things are going to turn out. So the author in the 11th chapter of Hebrews lists this great pantheon of heroes of faith, Abel and Enoch, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Samuel, Jacob, Rahab, David, Samson, Barak, and Samuel, and others. And this hall of faith, this hall of fame of faith, isn't presented as a list of people who had figured it all out, or who had collected and gathered the most information and knowledge and then acted upon it, but rather they are people who are just regular, normal human beings who made amazing decisions, decided to take that leap. And the author of Hebrews says in the 11th chapter, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things we cannot see. And that is how our ancestors, these great heroes of faith, received God's approval because they trusted before they understood. And they then knew not only that they were loved by God, but then understanding came after they took that leap of faith and made that decision. We all come to crossroads in life and we have to make a decision about who we are and whose we are. And so Calvin Miller, whose words are at the top of our, or the beginning of our bulletin this morning, uh, gives me a, an understanding of what it means to live a life of trust, of faith. Miller was a pastor and a professor and mostly a storyteller, best known for the Singer Trilogy, which is a mythic retelling of the New Testament in the spirit of C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien. He was considered a writer's writer and mostly known and praised throughout the Protestant evangelical world, but really, really popular. And in the Singer Trilogy, Calvin Miller recasts the good news of Jesus Christ as the good news of the story of the singer who starts his life as a tradesman like his father before him and his father before him. And he was good at being a tradesman, no doubt about it, but like we all do in the beginning of the Singer Trilogy, the tradesman arrives at one of those fork-in-the-road moments, those crossroads where he has to decide. He feels himself being tugged in a new and different direction. Listen to the moment when the singer recognizes himself when that voice calls from that new direction. He worked the wood and drove the pegs methodically. The shavings from the ads piled high upon the floor Earthmaker, he prayed, full of mercy when evening had come. I am a tradesman. No, said the silent heir, not a tradesman, a troubadour instead. 
A tradesman, he said firmly as he smashed his mallet on the vice. A troubadour, the silence thundered back. The singer has got to sing. He has to decide to embrace his own fate and to listen to the voice that is calling him. Because remember the opening quote this morning, for the most who live, Calvin Miller wrote, hell is never knowing who they are. And these decisions that we're called to make in faith, like that great hall of fame of faith leaders in, our, in Hebrews chapter 11, these decisions aren't easy, but they're always worth it. Listen to what happens once the singer embraces his call and his destiny. Miller writes, I knew a blind man whom a surgeon helped to see. The doctor never had a lover such as he. It is in such a way that singers love composers. And from the river, he moved on and on in quietness alone. He still talked to Earthmaker as he always had, but now he called him Father Spirit, and he loved the newer name. The star song came upon him with joy. At last, the singer sang. He threw the song against the basalt canyon walls. It ricocheted in splendor, and he remembered far before that he had sung those very canyons into being. Father Spirit, he shouted, at the desert sky, I love you. Ask of me anything you will, and I will do it all. The universe gathered up the echoes of the singer's joy and answered back, I love you too, O oh my singer. One thing alone I ask of you, sing my ancient star song to the world. Father Spirit, I will sing it. In every country I will sing it till the world you love can sing it too and in joy the singer sang and sang until he fell asleep on the desert floor. A retelling of Jesus' time in the wilderness, being tempted, and at the same time discovering who he really is. Just a few months ago, in May of this year, a man named Darren Harrison was coming back on a private uh, plane from a fishing trip in the Bahamas. Um, Darren Harrison is a salesman who sells flooring, interior design. Uh, he was one of just two passengers on this small chartered Cessna flying on that short little jaunt from the Bahamas back to Florida after, he, after this fishing trip. And he was having a conversation with the pilot. They were, you know, sort of bantering back and forth. And in fact, Harrison posted on his Instagram, sort of a self, not a selfie, but a picture of his feet in the flip-flops up on one of the seats, and in, on the, in the background is the pilot flying the airplane. But just a few moments after he took that photo, Harrison noted that the pilot, noticed that the pilot was having some problems. In fact, the pilot said, guys, I'm not feeling well. And then the pilot slumped over onto the controls, and the plane began a steep dive toward the water. Darren Harrison got up, went over, tried to shake the guy, make him awake, wake up, couldn't get him, couldn't revive him. Turns out that the pilot had had an aneurysm and was completely unconscious at this point. So as the <laughs> diving toward the water, Harrison reaches over, 
over the top of the slumped body of the pilot and he grabs the stick, the controls, and gently pulls them back because in a steep dive, to yank them back would probably put the plane into a stall and be disastrous for everybody. How he decided to do that, knew to do that, nobody knows, he doesn't even know. He finally, once he got the plane leveled off, he moved the pilot over to the co-pilot seat, he got in there, didn't know how to fly a plane, didn't know what he was looking at. He had torn out the headset of the pilot from the, from the control panel when he moved the pilot over to the seat, so he didn't even know how to contact anyone, but he figured out how to grab the other headset that was sitting there, and he got in touch with first the Miami and the Fort Pierce airport. The radio air traffic controllers got on the, the, the horn with him and started talking to him. They called one of their own who was down on the parking lot taking a coffee and cigarette break, a guy named Robert Morgan, who was not only an air traffic controller, but also a, uh, a flight instructor. And they got him back up into the control tower and he started talking to Darren Harrison. But they were, they were uh, struggling with this communication and as they were having trouble being in radio contact, Harrison flew into what's called the ADIZ, ADIZ, which is the Air Defense Identification Zone, and the Air Force scrambled two jets to fly up there and find out what was going on. But they were talking to this pilot who had never flown an airplane before, and eventually Robert Morgan talked Darren Harrison down to the ground, and he made a safe landing. He said, I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't know where I was, I didn't know how to do anything, I just saw the coast of Florida there, but I just had to do what I had to do. If I hadn't, I knew we would all die. He took a leap of faith. He made a decision in that moment. And Darren Harrison did what we all do when we make these little moments, whether they're dramatic like that or whether they're small and everyday. He recognized himself in a future that he couldn't know for sure was going to work out the way he wanted to. He stepped forward anyway and discovered his best life. Calvin Miller said, I knew a blind man whom a surgeon helped to see, and a doctor never had such a lover as he. And this is why singers love composers, because they help us to sing the song that we were born to sing. That is God's purpose for us, to find ourselves when we take that leap of faith, that step at those crossroads where we discover who we really are, Life of faith is an invitation which God extends to us over and over again. It is scary. Again, in Luke, Jesus says, he recognized that. He says, don't be afraid. Fear is real, but don't be afraid to live your best life, to take that risk. In The Count of Monte Cristo, one of my favorite novels and movies, the 2002 version, uh, Alexander Dumas, the author, has this incredible story which he, in which he introduces Edmond Dantes, a young sailor who's about to become a captain of his own ship and marry the girl of his dreams. But there's this story right at the beginning that unfolds of a double cross by greedy, uh, resentful people, a false accusation by people he thought were his close friends, to, which result in Edmond Dantes serving 14 years in the dungeon at the Chateau d'If, this island prison uh, off the coast and 14 years of shadows and darkness and suffering, whose only bright spot was a fellow prisoner named Abbe Farah, who 
tells Dante's of a treasure, a great treasure buried on the Isle of Monte Cristo. And eventually, in this amazing way, Edmond Dante's escapes his captors and travelers with smugglers along the Mediterranean coast until finally he finds, using a map left by now deceased priest, which was his fellow uh, prisoner, he's at the mouth of this treasure cave. And the closer Dumas writes that Edmond Dante's came, comes to the treasure, the more terrified and scared he feels. His terror was not, the, was not that the treasure was a fiction, but instead that it was really there. He was afraid that what was gonna, he was going to find what he had always dreamed of, and he wouldn't be able to handle it. Alexander Dumas, the author, observes that this is one of the strange phenomena of our human nature, that we feel the dread of daylight often more than we dread darkness. Because in the light, we can be seen, we can be watched, and we can be observed, and we see ourselves as we really are. And it's the kind of fear that Jesus has in mind in our gospel reading this morning from Luke, when he tells us, all of his disciples, do not be afraid, little flock, because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, and you will never be alone. So it's worth, always worth it, to take that leap of faith and find when you do that your treasure will be waiting for you. The treasure that is God and the treasure that is your true and best self. When we get this invitation in a few minutes, let us accept and trust that by stepping forward in faith and in trust, we're going to discover something better than we've ever, ever expected. Amen.